Welcome back to the show, you radical human you. Today, we're talking all about reconnecting or connecting deeper to your food. We're talking about the importance of shopping locally, seasonally, farmers markets, voting with your dollar. I talk about potentially becoming your own gardener, your own supplier, backyard chickens, having goats one day, big dreams to maybe own a homestead and reflecting on my journey of what that's looked like over the last couple of years as I have become an amateur homesteader looking after animals, tending to gardens, growing plants, a lot of the failures that come with that, but some of the wins and some of the perspective that I now have because of it. So this is a little call to action to be a little bit more intentional about where your food comes from and why that matters. So let's get into the show and find out, shall we? Hello, you radical human you. Today, we're going to be having a little solo cast chat about my thoughts on connecting more to your food, locally available, seasonally available. And for those of you that don't know, I am the learning, I'm learning in process. I'm not going to call myself a farmer by any means, but my wife and I have a little patch of land, five acres, and we're homesteading. We've got some animals, we've got some plants, and we're growing, we're doing all of that stuff. So we've learned some lessons along the way, and I want to be sharing some of that too. So I just wanted to have a conversation of some of the things I've been noodling on um, as I've come up with the outline for this podcast. But this is something I've really been diving deep on, um, in particular, over the last few years of my life, living more of that connected to the life cycle nature cycles, seasons, etc., and growing. And I think there's a lot of value here in sharing that with you too, because I think uh, our connections to our foods and where they come from and shaking the hands that feed us is a wise approach that we should take in a more holistic view. Um, there's levels to this game, I feel. And a lot of the time, we just have to get started. And it can start with whatever your meat pill is. It's, you know, removing seed oils, or it's finding Dr. Paul Saladino, or it's coming to Radical Health Radio through my channel, or whatever it is, and we all start somewhere. And then as we open Pandora's box, and we see that there are deeper and deeper levels, one of the levels, I think, is to go like beyond organic. And what that means is to really get into our cultures and into our farmers and into our communities to learn and try to connect as deeply, as passionately and as supportively with our food and where that's coming from as possible. And even getting to the point somewhere down the line where we can curate, find, um, grow some of our own food because it's a really fulfilling process. And I think that even if you're in an apartment complex, you can start that process and we'll be talking about some of that today. So I think we all understand this concept of eating a little bit more locally, um, not relying on these 3,000 mile long supply chains that we have in our culture that we saw what happened um, you know, to those supply chains quite dramatically during the pandemic over the last few years, right? They broke down and there was issues with getting food. And you, if you've talked to farmers or you've listened to this type of content, you might have been aware of the problems with farmers getting processing dates at the plants, you know, to process their animals, to put meats on the shelves or to put meats in the farmer's markets, which was very interesting because 
I live in a rural town and I was driving around and in the stores there was no food or a shortage of food which drives the prices up but there is an abundant uh, supply of food right outside of the cities you know cows on grass doing what they do and it's a big issue with these kind of um, you know owned uh, conglomerate kind of controlled food supply chains so one of the ways we can kind of support systems vote with our dollar is to really try and get into our local communities and support the people that are growing our food. And the most logical place to start there is farmer's markets. And farmer's markets are wonderful for a few reasons. I mean, usually you're not going to be going to your Publix or your HEB or whatever other kind of chain store that you use to shop at, which is fine. We're not judging anyone here. You've got to do the best you can with the tools you've got. But if you have a little bit more time and actually more resources, and if you are smart about this, you can actually save some money doing it this way and know that you're supporting and voting with your dollar in an appropriate way. It feels really good. But there's also something that's adjacent to the locality of going to a farmer's market and knowing that Bill provides you with your beef and Becky provides you with your milk, which is really cool. But you also then the the kind of plants that you add into your diet, whether it's the fruits or the roots or the seasonally available, um, you know, edible things that we like to add in have this seasonal component to them, too. Not everything grows 24 seven year round. And if we think about, you know, the, the amount of fruit that we import to the United States in particular, it's, it's about 30 to 40 percent of all the fruit that we eat is imported because we like things like pineapple. We like things like banana. We like things like um, wherever that are grown often in climates that aren't always available here. And I think there is some ancestral wisdom to adopting, at least to try and play with this sometimes, a seasonal and local approach to eating, which means maybe at certain times of year, we're eating only the things that do grow at that time of year, if we're including plants in our diet. Of course, the animals are, are a bit of a different case because we always had our ruminant animals on grasslands and we can eat those in a more evolutionary setting. We could hunt those, take those down and feed our families with that. But it's not like we had the luxury of flying in pineapples from Costa Rica 24-7, which we now do. And there is a cost to that too, right? We'll talk a little bit about this environmental conundrum. And if that's a passion of yours, then we should think about some of these things. But I do think that this idea of living more seasonally and potentially having more increase of fruit consumption in the summer months, for example, would align or map on quite well to our evolutionary um, understanding, our evolutionary timelines, and, and particularly maybe even paying attention to our kind of genetics, where our ancestors are from. Like my ancestors, white Northern European types, were not eating any plants in the winter. Um, you know, now that doesn't mean that I have to be zero carb keto or carnivore during the winter, but maybe I want to play with going a little bit lower carb and focusing on the things that I now can grow. Because of course, if you know, the, the snow, the ground is covered in snow, there's not much in the way of food growing and we are hunting large ruminant animals and mostly consuming those. But I can understand that in the fall, as we get ready for winter, as we're doing right now, I can grow those winter squashes and I can store those. And actually, when you learn to store food, you can actually, I, I didn't know this, and I think a lot of people just don't know this. You can store potatoes for months and months and months if you store them in the right conditions in a cool, dark place. And people will even have purpose-built things for this, like a, a root cellar, and they can store winter squashes all season long. And these are things that 
if you haven't gone about learning them or you haven't had this conversation, you don't really know. But this local and seasonal is always a good place to start because it really connects you to your food in a way that, oh yeah, I can't always just have blueberries on hand, even though they're my favorite thing. And that doesn't mean you don't get to or have to, and you don't have to listen to any of this. You do what you want. But I do think there is um, an, a more growing awareness and implications around understanding where we're getting our food from, how far it has to travel to make it to our plates. And in an ideal world, if we could start to prioritize, not, not be completely beholden to this, that I can only eat locally and seasonally, I can only eat what I grow and forage and hunt. That's where we came from, and we should have some respect and reverence for that, but also understanding that we live in a wonderful time where we can eat a diverse variety of things, but also paying attention to where that comes from is kind of cool. And when you start to either grow your own food or speak to the farmers at the farmer's markets, you get to ask more questions and actually know about the animals, the life cycle of the animals, how they were raised, how they were treated, what were they fed. There's a lot of greenwashing in... Um, this, the food industry, even in the local settings. And unfortunately, sometimes it's, it's very okay for anybody to say that the beef was grass fed, because at some point in its life, it was grass fed. Uh, they're not lying, but that might have been grass fed for 70% of its life. But was that grass organic? Just because it says grass fed doesn't mean that it was grass finished. If you go to the supermarket and you pick up that, you know, package of grass fed ground beef in the packet, that's about as much as you know. You won't find any extra information that if you could shake the hand that feeds you, if you could talk to the farmer, you could ask those questions. Is this grass-fed and grass-finished? Or is it grass-fed and grain-finished? Was the grass sprayed with anything? Was it sprayed with our sides, herbicides, pesticides, rodenticides, fungicides? The sides, meaning death, like homicide, that kill the soils and the animals probably shouldn't eat those, especially you are what you eat, eat. So we want to think about these things and not doing it in a way that feels attacking or probing, but you deserve to know where your food comes from and how that food was treated. And what I found in you know my local communities, and I think this is more widely available than we realize, is there are a lot of farmers around you, likely, even if you live in a city, if you go half an hour outside of the city, you can find farmers that would love to go direct to consumer that might not even be at the farmer's market. And if you can do direct to consumer processing, um, you can not only have a very... Um, a lot of control over the inputs and where you vote with your dollar, it's often very cheap or cheaper comparatively. And you get to um, kind of have a animal that was maybe processed and even in the highest cases field dressed in a more kind and compassionate way. Because here's the disconnect, even if you got 100% USDA certified organic grass fed and finished beef at a store, to even get that label of USDA certified organic even if the animal was 100% grass-fed and finished, it did spend its last 12 to 24 hours in the back of a truck getting shipped off to a certified USDA plant where it was kept in the dark that's in an attempt to calm them down, where it's then put inside of a, a machine that kind of constricts the movement, all very stressful. It's not around its native environment. It's not with its friends, that it, the smells that it's used to, the scenes that it's used to, to receive the bolt in the head. And I was speaking, I've been speaking increasingly to people that hunt and farm and they always talk about the importance of a clean kill. And the reason, a big part of the reason for that is compassion for the animal and reverence for the animal, but also so that you don't spoil the meat. If you don't take a clean shot and the animal is wounded and runs a long time, 
the meat can become spoiled because of the stress hormones, like the adrenaline and the cortisol that can infiltrate some of the meat. And then it's interesting to me that we kind of sometimes gloss over that conversation when we think about the the beef, the ground beef, the ribeyes, the steaks, the cuts that we're consuming in the store. How much stress was that animal under? You know, in an ideal world, I think the best way to go out, as Taylor Collins described in our podcast, is that animal is in its native environment with all of its pals and it's all of its smells and it's in its same routine in its home and it's safe. And along comes the rancher and boom, you know, a bullet in the back of the head or in the brain, the animal goes down, it knew no different and it was removed from consciousness immediately. And in some cases, if you start going direct to consumer, you can find people that do it this way and they can even field dress, which means they can, you know, make the cuts there and then they take them to the, you know, to the processing. Or you can have custom butchers that you can get. And that's what I did last year. I got a half cow that was um, custom butchered for me exactly to the specifications that I want, the amount of ground beef that I wanted, the thickness of the steaks that I wanted. And because of doing that, I, get to, I got to ask my farmer all of these questions about what kind of grass. And in the winter, what were they fed? Oh, hay. Hay is just dried grass. Was that hay sprayed? No, that hay wasn't sprayed. That's great to know because a lot of hay is sprayed. In fact, we feed our goats hay. And it's actually very, very hard to find non-sprayed hay. And people will actually advertise the hay as sprayed because they think it's a flex. You have to remember, we get caught in these echo chambers sometimes. We know that sprayed grasses aren't good for the ecosystems and the soil health and thus the animal that consumes them. But in a more conventional model of farming and consumption and agriculture, people love things like Roundup they, it, because it keeps the weeds away. So people are like, oh, I have tons of bales of sprayed hay. It's great because they're basically telling you this hay is just pure grass. It doesn't have weeds in it. So we have to look far and wide for hay that is not sprayed. And these are only questions you get to answer, ask and, and answer for yourself if you talk to the kind of people that had it. So you can learn a lot about the feed type and if they were grain finished, were they finished on a non-GMO um, you know, organic corn and a sweet feed to add a little bit of marbling. And is that what you want? Do you want a little bit more fat because it's better for you from a mouthfeel perspective? Or do you want 100% grass fed and finished? What were they using for medications? Were they vaccinating their cows? All questions that you can only find out if you have a relationship to your farmer. So I think this is, this is important and it's um, it really highlights a lot of, you know, what, what can go on behind the scenes, you know, behind the curtain of the show of farming, even when we're doing the best we can and we think we're nailing it, you know, oh no, 100% grass-fed and finished, certified USDA organic, they are still, you know, um, owned, regulated properties and therefore the animals must go there and they're taken out of the natural habitat and they're probably stressed out and, and in an ideal world, I don't think any of us want that, you know? So there's a, there's a conversation to be had there and thinking about, you know, taking to Facebook groups in your local community, searching for these Facebook groups, asking questions. If you're in rural towns, it's often a lot easier, but even if you're in cities, the questions and the connections that you can find at the farmer's market, you're only ever one degree removed from finding the person that sells the milk or finding the person that's doing a slightly higher grade of this, that, and the other that you're looking for. Now, of course, as we, you know, if we don't have access to either of those, we can always use subscription services. Um, 
like force of nature meets like taylor collins what they're doing they're 100 like truly honestly regeneratively raised sourced farmed and harvested meats in a very healthy way and these are great options to have and again we do factor in the cost of where we're spending that money because although that is a really high quality source of meat it is packaged um, in plastic it is put inside of boxes it is put on the back of fedex and ups trucks and it's shipped all around the globe and you know not to be a whole you know get into the climate alarmist thing but we know that one of the arguments that are levied against as people that choose to eat meat and support an animal-based diet is that cow farts cow burps are destroying the planet not only is red meat bad for you as we're told you know cholesterol and saturated fat and we rally against those arguments but we're also told it's selfish and it's destroying the planet because of greenhouse gas emissions now via the work of um, diana rogers at the sustainable dish and the statistics published by epa.gov if you actually look at total greenhouse gas emissions agriculture only accounts for about 3.9 percent of total agriculture emissions and beef itself is only two percent of that but transport is 28.5 percent so 3%, 3.9% ag emissions, um, greenhouse gas, and then you've got you know almost 30% from transport, and you've got other huge players here like industry and uh, electrical, etc. But if we really want to then vote with our dollar and vote with regenerative farms that are healing the soils and also then address the other elephant in the room, which is this transportation issue, then it makes a lot of sense to stay as local as possible because the transport then is a lot smaller. I don't need to get things shipped from the West Coast when I can get it 10 miles from my home. And I don't need to order subscription boxes every month and have to deal with that when I can get it with a little bit of effort and with a little bit of detective work on my own. So just something to think about because um, it's, it's like I said, new, new levels, new devils and all of that. When you become aware of one thing, you become aware of how deep the rabbit hole goes. And I do feel that if we are to move forward and keep improving our health, and when I say our health, I mean the health of us as individuals, but collectively and our soils and supporting our farmers that it really is a grassroots movement of doing that it's not going to come from any top-down system that you know have this benevolent kind of view of the world of oh yeah regenerative agriculture is really important and we should save the planet because we see those misaligned incentives and broken incentives aren't doing that so it's it's on us and if we have the capacity to do this and we have the um, opportunity to vote with our dollar and support these systems and support these farmers doing it in the right way that's the only thing we can really do in order to enact change. Now, the next step or the next evolution of that, of course, would be getting to a point where whether this is one day and it's in the pipe dream that, you know, we can retire and have our little plot of land and do our animals or whether you start just connecting to growing your food now in the way that you can, whether that's growing some herbs in your window, in your apartment, on your little balcony. There's always the possibility to start this process now even if it's not necessarily the thing that you're most excited about eating. Like you might want to do some cilantro, but you also might be a little bit conflicted about, well, what about plants defense compound? It's more right now, the act of really connecting with the potential that all of us have to um, grow life and be a part of that life cycle. And that the number one crop in the US, people would think it's probably something like corn or soy. It's actually, um, grass it's lawns like there's there's so many millions of acres of lawns and gardens 
um, but not edible gardens in the United States, that we are missing a huge opportunity here to have a little patch of grass that we could grow on, grow the foods that we want to eat, whether that's cucumbers or zucchinis or tomatoes or some herbs or some garlic that you can ferment and put in honey and have medicinally available to you through the winter as an immunity booster. Like there's so much you can do here. And I think it's important that we, I challenge you and we accept this challenge collectively of saying, yeah, let's, let's just grow something. Let's see what happens because it really gives you a lot of insight into where your food comes from and what goes into it. And I think if people started to grow, whether it's little something on the balcony or whether it's taking up half of the front lawn and turning it into an edible food garden, that they are not only going to be able to come full circle and eat something that they grew and see the power in that, but they start to become their own little regenerative system. They start to heal their own soils and they start to become resilient systems too. You see the biggest issue at hand as far as I can see it with these long supply chain issues is that if they break down, where does our food come from? And that gets quite scary quite quickly. If we don't have access to food and people start to go hungry, things could get pretty gnarly pretty quickly. If you have access to food, if you're growing a little bit and then you learn some preservation techniques like canning, or you can have a, a little you know, dark corner somewhere where you can house you know, a six month supply of winter squashes and vegetables and you've got a, you know, a freezer that you put a half a cow in and you have a generator that, that would keep that set, you're at least good on the food front, right? So I was always fascinated by the this story of the Victory Gardens that was used in World War II, in particular in England, as um, a call to action from the government that was highlighting the stress that war was going to put on the system. Now we know food stamps were given out and this was a designed a call to action to um, the people in communities to take to their yards and turn them into edible gardens and to communicate with one another. Okay, this person over here is doing onions, so we're not all going to do onions. Onions, uh, tomatoes, garlic, whatever it is, a community effort. And they called them victory gardens because they said that it was the key to winning the war. And, you know, up until around the 1950s in England, at least, people were consuming, um, uh, sorry, people were growing at least 50% of all the food that they were eating. And that number is single digits now. It's hard to really pin down what the number actually is. But we went from, you know, less than 100 years ago, growing about half the food that we were consuming as people to basically growing none of our own food and relying on these kind of broken incentives where, again, most of our fruit is coming from overseas. Most of the meat that you're eating, if you're picking it up at the store, is not coming from the town down the road that has all the cattle. It might be coming from 2,000 miles away. And it just doesn't make that much sense if we want to think about sustainability, regenerative practices, and resilient practices that can stand the test of time. So a little call to action here is... Do you have a nice pretty lawn and that's great, but it's very sterile and it requires a lot of, you know, mowing and, you know, you plant pretty flowers and hopefully you don't spray those flowers to keep away the bugs, but maybe carving out a little patch to grow or maybe just turning yourself fully into a little miniature homesteader in the making where you start to grow your own food and plant little gardens and start to play with this thing. Because I think our ability to grow those foods is, is a really powerful thing. It's a very empowering thing. It's a lost art. It's a very human art that we 
We needed to know how to do these things. We needed to know how to hunt. We needed to know how to forage. We needed to know what to eat in the wild and what not to eat because we do know that a lot of that stuff in the wild, if you eat it, will make you sick. And this is lost technology almost. You know, we think of technology as flying cars and rocket spaceships and going to Mars one day. And we forgot that the technology that exists within us from our ancestors, from that wisdoms that is passed down, is so much of this forgotten stuff that unless we reprioritize it, who's going to be there to teach us? You know, I don't think we can find this stuff on YouTube. Oh, God forbid YouTube goes away because the grid goes away. And if the grid goes away, where is this food coming from? All of our stuff that's in our fridge is perishable. And unless we know these things or have some understanding of these things, it, 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 it's, it's not very um, empowering. And I think that I never want to be a doomsday or anything like that. I'm, I'm hopelessly optimistic. And I think that we're going to figure all of this stuff out and life is going to be wonderful. And I also like to be pragmatic and do these things because they're fun. I enjoy them. They're very enlivening. Um, and I think we like making progress. And if you need food and, you know, you, I just live in Tennessee, there's storms and tornadoes roll through. We can be without power for 48 hours. I don't need to stress it too much because I have backup systems in place because we're creating a little resilient system there. So a little call to action and challenge there is to see what you can start growing, see what you can start playing with. Of course, another um, interesting way to think about your local and seasonality is to potentially start to learn about foraging. That's kind of building on what I just spoke about, this ability to go into your woodlands, your state parks, your national parks, foraging in the woods for the edible stuff that grows seasonally. What's always fascinated me about what grows at certain times of year is it seems to serve a purpose for what is coming next, right? There are certain like immune boosting plants and herbs that will grow in nature as we get ready to enter into the winter where we might need a little bit more immunity boosting help. Now, I am far from an expert forager or, 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 you know, hunter of herbs, but I am learning. And I think seeking out people that do know these things and doing a, you know, a workshop with them or having them take you out there to identify different mushrooms in the woods, etc., is good skills to know, even if you don't necessarily get very excited about eating those things, even if you're concerned about mold toxins or plant defense compounds from eating mushrooms. Like in an ideal world, you don't need to eat those and that might not be a part of your eating plan right now, but it's still very cool knowledge to know. And there are certain things that you can use because I think we agree here within this community at least that plants are incredible medicines, maybe better medicines than they are food. And most of the plants that grow in the wild, the edible ones at least, can be used in a medicinal way. You know, whether it's making an elderberry syrup or whether it's growing that garlic in your garden that you can ferment in the honey and have as kind of like a cold and flu remedy. There is many, many ways to do this. So think about um, potentially seeing if there's anybody online or in your space that's a foraging expert, a plant identification expert, and see if you can buddy up with them, pair up with them, pay for a workshop with them, ask them to come out on your land if you have a little bit of land and see what they can teach you because it's pretty interesting to go out there, find things like stinging nettle and then bring that stinging nettle in and then put it in a glass jar and make a tincture with it. And now you have a, a profoundly medicinal healing thing that was growing in your back garden that most people just think is a weed and they want to kill it with Roundup. So I think this, you know, attention and awareness can be really uh, profoundly altering in the way in which we approach our food and is an extra layer of this seasonality and locality to our eating. A couple of 
options here just in, in closing out is to think about potentially pairing up or buddying up with people in order to buy in bulk. I've been a huge fan of buying in bulk for a long time instead of weekly trips to the supermarket or to Costco or to Sam's Club or to the farmer's market in an ideal scenario where you're buying what you eat for the week and potentially spending, you know, $15.99 a pound, $12.99 a pound, $7.99 a pound for various cuts of different meats to buy a cow share, a whole cow, a half cow, a quarter cow, and it's usually a lot more cost effective. So the very high quality cow that I got last summer averaged out at about $7 a pound for over 220 pounds of meat. And that was everything from the ground beef all the way to the fillets from that cow, the tenderloins, the ribeyes, the beef ribs. And that is very cost effective. Now you can make it more cost effective because if I'd have got the full cow and said, you take half and I take half, it got it down to about $5 a pound, like $5 a pound for grass fed and finished, locally sourced, organically non-medicated cattle that came less than 10 miles away from my house that I can put in my freezer and eat all year long. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable deal. But you have to maybe get creative here. You have to pool. If you know a couple of people that are like you and you want to see if you can kind of gather some funds and then do this research, find this person, buy in bulk and then split it up between you is a very smart move and you will save money in the long run. And I think that's just something that allows you a little bit more freedom and control over where you spend your dollar and how you vote. So a little pro tip there. See if you can buddy up and find some people that you can uh, do this with. Now I'm going to kind of, you know, close today with a few of more of my direct lessons from our homestead and journey, my wife and I learning to manage our chickens, our goats, our garden, growing, um, looking to continue to rehabilitate our little patch of land and add more animals in the future and get our goats pregnant so that our goats can produce milk and we could have our own raw goat milk and living off the land and obviously getting many, many eggs a day, which is very useful in today's climate. So um, that's safe to say has uh, came with some lessons because we did not start this with any kind of background in any of this. You know, just two and a half years ago, I hadn't done pretty much any of the things that I just told you about, about the furthest extent I had gone is knowing where I got certain foods from and knowing that, you know, Bob was my farmer again, and that Dave was the guy that I got my milk from. But now going deeper and deeper and enjoying this process and, and the challenges that come with it too, uh, it's taught us a lot. So I want to just share a couple of those lessons with you. Um, and number one is that there are no perfect solutions, only trade-offs. And this is a lesson from homesteading that applies to life. There are no perfect solutions. Very rarely, if ever, is there actually a perfect solution. There are only trade-offs. And I think the reason a lot of people don't make decisions is because they believe that if they wait long enough, they can find the perfect decision. And it's our kind of blessing and curse of having this mind where we can think about so many different moving parts that we then end up an analysis paralysis that we just freeze because we're overwhelmed. And I think that the best thing that you can do is understand if you feel like you're waiting to figure it all out, I'll wait and then I'll be ready. 
that you're never going to feel ready. Ready is a decision and it just needs to be made. And then you need to make it based on the trade-offs that you can live with because you will live with those trade-offs. Try to minimize and damage control, but understand nothing is ever going to be perfect, particularly when you're managing plants and you don't know what you're doing, particularly when you're managing goats and they keep breaking out or jumping the fence or getting on your roof or eating things that they shouldn't. There are no perfect solutions. There are just trade-offs. And that if you acknowledge that and you can move forward, this is where the lessons really come. So the failure that you will have on a journey like this, the failure that we've had where certain things have not grown well or we, you know, because of the trade-offs we didn't anticipate, it didn't go um, to plan, that failure is feedback. It's not a loss. And I love this reframe of transitioning from a loser's mindset to a learner's mindset. Failure is feedback. It gives you some idea as to what you can do next. And if you bury yourself in the shame and the guilt for being such a mess up and getting it so wrong that you then can't move forward and learn from that, that's only when failure is definitive. If you grow from failure and you take the information and you sit with it and then you pivot and you move again onto the next right best decision with the tools and the knowledge that you've got, understanding that nothing's going to be perfect, then you can really grow through your failures. You can take that feedback, you can use it, and you can turn the loss into a lesson. And this gives you an enormous sense of purpose and meaning and growth and happiness because progress is purpose. And this is one of the things that I, I, I think happens to a lot of us when we feel stuck or we feel like we're in a rut or we don't feel particularly happy in life right now. There's a consistent theme. Um, there can be a lot that's going on there, but one of the consistent themes is that usually it's when we're not making progress when we feel like that. This feeling of being stuck is a literal and metaphorical stuckness. We're not actually learning, progressing, iterating, changing, or doing anything that's forcing us to grow. So we need to be making progress. We can only really make progress if we do the thing. We can only do the thing if we acknowledge that we don't know all of the unintended, unintended consequences. And we have to be open to surprise and carry an everything is figure outable attitude and energy that we just make the best decision that we can. And we hope that it goes to plan and we stay in the kind of hum humility, if you will, of uh, it might fail. But if it fails, it's feedback. This will allow us to progress. This will give us purpose and this will give us something that we can keep making energy gaining and not energy draining because it's work. All of this stuff that I've kind of put on the table today to talk to you about doing is more work. And a lot of people don't want to do more work. It's the busy enough. I get it. Like I'm busy too. But this is the kind of work that is energy drain, energy gaining, not energy draining. It's not more spreadsheets. It's not more sending emails. It's not that stuff. It's the work that you feel good about because ultimately it's about what you get to have because of that work. Whether that's, you know, your own backyard chickens putting eggs on your plate in the morning that you and your family can eat or drinking from your goat milk one day or harvesting your own cow one day if you're playing at that level or just adding, you know, a little bit of the, the organic, you know, beyond organic herbs that you grew on your balcony to a dish that you've created, right? That's work, but you put yourself into it and it's very rewarding and it's very fulfilling and that to me is, pr is purpose and that purpose comes through this progress of growing this 
So we've tried a bunch of different things and some things really hit and landed and some things didn't hit and land so much and some things that worked last season didn't work as much this season. And why were our tomatoes better last season than they were this season? Hmm, well, they were in this bed and the compost didn't go into this bed this season because we didn't have enough of it. Or, you know, the, the this tree grew actually and that tree was stopping the sun coming over and these plants didn't get as torched this year and that was actually better for them. So there's constant constant feedback from nature and nature really knows and nature shows and i think when we start to kind of try to be more in relationship to nature through growing food and and tending to animals we tap into that wisdom the wisdom of nature that never forces you know nature follows the law of least effort that you just watch nature it's not ever trying too hard the cyclical nature of the seasons just unfold perfectly on time, reliably every year. And it's the cycle of, of, you know, budding and springing and blooming and then slow decay and death. And it's cyclical all the time. And I think we miss that in our lives a lot of the time because we never have a chance to go into our solitude and our stillness. And we don't take a seasonal approach, not only to our food, but also to our lives at certain times, we might want to also let things die and go into the shadows and go into a more restful mode. But our culture tells us that it's all go all the time and do, 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 instead of being a little bit sometimes. You know, humans sing the do, do, do song when I want us to be singing the do, be, do song. Do, be, do, be. You are a human being after all, not just a human doing. So inherently by growing things in your garden, etc., looking after animals, you are interconnected with nature in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be. And that nature is who you are. You are an extension of that. And that wisdom that you can find by being a little more in tune to a little more of these things that we spoke about today can go a long way in not only improving your health, because these foods are inherently healthier. The things that grow in your local environment, your local ecology are more matched to what's going on in your local environment. The more resonant with what you need at that time. If you're getting your meat from the farmer that you know and trust that isn't spraying his food and his animals aren't stressed out when he kills them, that's a healthier food for you to be consuming. And also as a more kind of global connection, holistic, mental and emotional and spiritual connection to these things, that this is a more integrative way of being involved with your food, where your food comes from, connecting to your food, honoring your food, really being grateful about it and understanding that there is a cost to the convenience that we currently have. And it's amazing on one hand because we can go anywhere in the world, find a grocery store, pick up our favorite cut of meat. But that came from somewhere and it was life and that life was taken and how was it taken and, and how did it get here? And I think that these aren't questions that we should drive ourselves mad with every day, but they are questions that we deserve to ask ourselves if we want a better future, if we want to support the kind of practices that are hopeful and inspiring and regenerative. And those are some of my um, takeaways, I guess, I'm thinking about this from a 
kind of bro philosophical lens and also a practical lens where hopefully you can get your hands in the soil and um, maybe get yourself a few backyard chickens and get yourself some eggs or grow yourself some stuff and really reconnect to your food because I think when you connect to your food you connect back to yourself in a more profound way and that will lead to radical health. So good luck going out there go get into your farmer's markets, go find those Facebook groups, connect, talk, network, find the people that are doing it right. And if you can't do that, then you do it right. Because if not you, who? And if not now, when? I'll see you next week, friends. Take it easy. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of radical health. We'll see you next week.